American novelist Harlan Coben once said, more than once, I wished my real life had a delete key. Of course, he's a writer, so he had a delete key all the time, but he wanted one for his own life. Have you ever thought to yourself, boy, I just wish I could start over? Maybe it was just a a conversation you needed to have, and then you made one brief comment that wasn't so well thought through at the beginning, and then it just makes the whole conversation go down the drain. Or maybe it was slightly more serious, um, a relationship, perhaps, that had just begun, and then it gets off to a bad start, and you just wish you could start the whole thing over again. To my shame, I'm, you're going you're gonna to have to... Uh, Try not to judge me when I tell this story, guys. When I, when I, to my shame, what, this is exactly what happened to me when I first moved here. Sarah and I had just moved onto Boswell Street. We're in a different house now, but on the same street. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a new pastor in a new location, and I'm really excited to go and meet my neighbors and to invite them over the house and to share Jesus with them and to be this kind of light here in this little street. And um, I just couldn't wait to be there and meet them all. But I really... I made a really dumb decision. We had just moved, and so we had all these Ikea boxes broken down in our uh, our kitchen, and most of them had fit fit in the recycling, but but some of them didn't, so we chucked them outside in the garden, and then it rains, and uh, so there was this little pile of broken down, soaked boxes, and, uh, and, you know, you have to, to be fair here, in the U.S., we don't take things to the tip. I've never been in the, to the tip in my entire life. Um, and so, anyways, I didn't really know what to do with them, but I had been eyeing right behind me. My neighbor had a large skip, and, and I had been eyeing that it had not been used for at least the week that I had been there. It was mostly empty. And so I thought, I've got good neighbors, right? And certainly, they would have no problem with me putting a small, little, tiny few boxes in his skip. Certainly, he's a nice guy. And so I, I decided to, to do just that. I made the wrong decision because the next day, all those boxes were spewing out across my back garden. <laughs> and I felt, I was so ashamed and embarrassed. And I thought, well, there you go. I just ruined my reputation with this guy. I was, I was horrified. I just wanted to press the delete key on that whole situation and start over in Rotherham. Eventually, I did get the courage to, to go and knock on his door. I hadn't met him yet, so I go and knock on his door. This is a bit awkward. He, I've put my boxes in his skip. He's thrown them all over my garden. And so I, I, I knock on his door to apologize and give him a bottle of wine. And, then, uh, and he accepted my apology. And then I told him I'm the new pastor at the United Reformed Church down the street. Um, no, I didn't. I didn't do that. Things have been patched up. And actually, we, we get along fine now. For many, though, it's, it's more serious than just one relationship. Perhaps it's a whole lifetime of decisions that you just wish you could restart on. One of my favorite stories is a famous musical turned, actually, a book before it was a musical and now it's a movie. You probably have, many of you have seen it. It's, it's called Les Rob. One of the most gripping moments in the, in the musical is when a character named Fantine is dying. Now, Fantine has made a number of really poor decisions. She's entrusted her life to people who eventually crushed her with her trust. And now she is, in this, in this musical, she is in a brothel dying, thinking that's the only way she could pay to keep her daughter alive. And in one of the most 
you know, riveting moments in the musical. She's singing this song called I Dreamed a Dream. It's really, it's a song about a life that she dreamed she would have had, but it, it never came to be. And Fantine finishes with this haunting line. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. It's a song about wanting to go back. If I could only restart. Can we start over? Can we be made new? Here's what the Apostle Paul says. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. See, that word creation is really, it's massively important in the Bible. That's because the, the whole Bible, and really the, the, the story of the Bible is really the story of the world, right? It can be summarized with this pattern here. Creation moves into decreation because of sin and God's judgment, and then God patches it up again with recreation. Before we get to 2 Corinthians 5.17, I want to do something a little different. I want to show you how this, this cycle, this pattern of cre- creation moving into decreation and then back into recreation shows up through the entire scriptures. The Bible, of course, begins with creation. Creation, right, bursts forth into existence. Light, water, land, vegetation, animals, and then, of course, humans the crown of God's creation, these these image bearers of the creator himself. It's It's the last bit. And then God does something remarkable with these image bearers. First, what he does is he plants them in the garden. He plants them in this little garden paradise. You can see in the slide there. And then he blesses them. And then third, he gives them a task and he gives them a mission. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth rule over my creation, take care of all my creation. He's saying, I want you humans, Adam and Eve, and then all other humans, to represent my rule and my authority over this creation, and I want you to fill this, I want you to fill this creation with my rule so that the borders of, of the Garden of Eden extend to the whole earth, so that the, that the garden kind of overtakes the entire earth, and my authority and rule is seen over it all. But Adam and Eve rebel. They fail to reflect God's rule and authority, don't they? And then this divine curse comes down. And then decreation begins. Immediately, the lush and fruitful garden turns into a hardened, thorny field. The unity and love shared between Adam and Eve and all humanity is now turned into animosity and hatred and even murder, isn't it? And now as as humanity spreads throughout the world, they're not spreading the garden, they're now spreading decreation. Now let's fast forward to the final chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. We were at the very first two chapters, now we're in the last two chapters. And this is, of course, the final chapter of history. The Apostle Paul, what he sees is a new heavens and a new earth. It's as if heaven has now come down to earth. Tears are wiped away. Death is in the rearview mirror. And then this new creation is is pictured as that Garden of Eden restored and even better. Right out of the the throne where Jesus sits and rules perfectly as the one perfect king, there's there's a river that flows 
clear as crystal. On either side of it is this, this tree of life that you see in Genesis 1. But, but now this tree of life has bearing lush and fruitful, it's a fruitful tree that gives healing to the nations. The vegetation is luscious. The, gir- the curse is gone. Night is no more. And John says humans will finally reign with Christ forever. Creation and then decreation by God's judgment and then God's salvation as a new creation. The interesting thing about the Bible is that this pattern that you see right here shows up through the entirety of scriptures. It's as if God is, it shows up in miniature form. It's as if God is showing us that the entire story that that sin brings, the unraveling, the undoing of creation, and yet God always puts the pieces together, that it's, it's wrapped into every story that you find almost. So let me walk you through this. I, I got, just FYI, I got a little chart happy today, so bear with me. If they're not helpful, I don't know, I, I have like 35 charts in here, so um, there you go. If they're not helpful, then just ignore them. You can see this in Genesis 6. After Adam and Eve sin, the world descends into even deeper evil and corruption. And God decides to judge them. And this judgment is nothing short than an undoing of creation. God tells Noah, I'm going to send a flood that will literally destroy every living thing on earth. But then there's a sliver of hope. Because on the other side of the flood, Noah will will be like this new Adam and a new creation. And all the animals with him will kind of serve as a backdrop for this new creation. It's as if we get a new start. And then we have a new cycle in the Exodus. the, The pattern continues later with the nation of Israel. God's people are enslaved. Who are they enslaved by? This mighty Egyptian army. They're ruled by a cruel and despotic pharaoh. And so God is going to bring out judgment for the sin and evil of Pharaoh and Egypt. And he does so in the form of these ten plagues. I'm sure you've heard of them. And, And it's no coincidence that these plagues are a reversal of Genesis 1. They're a reversal of God's creation. Whereas God created the water, right, in Genesis 1. Now, in the plagues, he he turns the water of the Nile into blood. Whereas in in Genesis 1, um, God created the vegetation. Now the locusts and the hail destroy all of Egypt's crops and vegetation. Whereas God created the light and he separated it from the darkness in Genesis 1. Now, darkness rules over the land and no light can get through. And finally, whereas God creates his representative son, Adam, and his Eve, his daughter, now the firstborn son of every Egyptian is taken. Creation gives way to decreation. But mysteriously, through this judgment, God brings Israel into a new land, doesn't he? It's a land that resembles the Garden of Eden when they get into it. The garden that their, their long-lost parents once inhabited. It's as if they're in now a new creation. Israel then enters into their new creation land, but then they end up, of course, living like Egypt. And God sends prophets to tell them, I'm going to judge you. And this judgment is nothing short of the unwinding of the creation order. You can see right here, Jeremiah 4, 23 through 26, Jeremiah is pronouncing judgment on Israel. He says this, I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty. We're we're at Genesis 1, 1. 
and the skies, and their light was gone. And I looked at the mountains, and they were quaking. And I looked at the, and there was no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked, and the fruitful, fruitful land was a d- desert. Sin and evil will ultimately lead to the undoing of created order. But then there are other prophets who come along and say, no, there's hope on the other side. There's hope for a new creation. Isaiah 43 says, one day I'm going to transform this desert into a fruitful garden. In Isaiah 65, 17, perhaps the most famous verse about a new creation says this, behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things of the old creation will not even be remembered. Time passes. Prophets go silent. Jesus arrives. Plot twist to the story. Jesus goes to the cross. He experiences God's judgment against sin. And what happens? Creation begins to unravel. Darkness covers the land. The earth shakes. The rocks split, Matthew 27. Jesus, the the, the eternal Son of God in whom is life, his body experiences death. Jesus experiences decreation. But the pivotal moment in the whole story of the Bible occurs three days later when Jesus, he resurrects from the dead. Death gives away the life. Jesus' resurrection is the defining moment of history because as the Apostle Paul explains, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of a new creation. He's the firstborn from among the dead, Colossians 1. He's the firstfruits of those who have died. Meaning, his resurrection is the first one of all those who will be resurrected in the new creation. Jesus' resurrection is like a lightning bolt of new creation life that comes right in the midst of the old, decaying creation that's wasting away. Maybe you're thinking, wow, that's an amazing story. But what does it have to do with me? You see, the Bible teaches that every person to live after Adam and Eve, that's, that's all of us, entered into that old, decaying, broken, sin-sick world. But it's not simply, it's not simply that you've entered into this decaying, broken, sin-sick world. The problem is, is that every person is part of that old, decaying, broken, sin-sick world. We are old, decaying, broken, sin-sick creatures. there's good news, and that's what we have in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 17. The good news is that, Paul says, you can be a new creation. And that's what he's going to explain and unpack in verses 14 through 17. He's, he's saying, you can be made new. You can join the new creation. Paul begins unpacking for us this gospel story in verse 14. You can read with me. We, we are convinced that one died for all. That means that Jesus' death wasn't for him, right? It was for others in some sense. His experience of decreation wasn't for him. Then Paul continues, therefore all died. 
Paul's saying, if Jesus died for you, then you died on that cross. This is precisely what, what Paul says about himself. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But, but I've got a question. In, in what sense did you die, if you're in Christ, in what sense did you die on the cross? In what sense did Paul die on the cross? It wasn't physically. I mean, I'm still living here. Paul was living when he said this. He doesn't mean you died physically on the cross, does he? What does he mean? To answer that, you have to understand that Paul divides your life, if, you, if you're a Christian, into two eras. You have the era of the old man, what Paul often calls the flesh, okay? And then you have the era of the new man. The old man was a slave to sin. The new man has the Spirit of God. The old man is part of that wasting away decreation. This past weekend, I, I was freshly reminded um, about that corrupt, the corrupt and destructive nature of what Paul calls the old man. Our family visited uh, the William Wilberforce House Museum in, in Hull. And as you probably know, Wilberforce was, a, was an MP for, for Yorkshire in the late 18th centuries and early 19th, late, early, sorry, late 18th and early 19th centuries. And he's, Wilberforce is probably most well known to uh, the larger world because he was instrumental in um, removing the, the horrific slave trade. I took a few pictures at the house. You can see them here at the Wilberforce house. These are some of the collars used to control and dominate uh, African Americans. Or sorry, I'm ceased to be in the U.S. African slaves. And I thought to myself as I, as I looked at those pictures, it's a stark picture of what the old man, or how the old man is destructive in nature right? I couldn't help but think of Genesis 2. God gives humanity rule and authority to, to represent his loving authority over creation, and here is humanity, and of course in the enlightened West, hundreds of years of image bearers, not, not representing his rule and authority over creation, but taking other image bearers and dominating them and controlling them and horrifically, cruelly enslaving them in unspeakable ways. That's the fabric of creation and of created order being unwound, isn't it? Paul is saying, if Christ died for you, that old man is dead. And that means, verse 15, that those who are alive in Christ should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. If your old man is dead, then you no longer live to please yourself. You see, this is the problem with the old man. The old man puts himself on the throne. The old man asks, what's in it for me? The old man says, my goal in life is to make me happy even at the expense of others. Isn't that what that is? The new man displaces himself from the throne and puts Christ on the throne. That's verse 15. I'm going to live for him. But Paul's point really comes to a crescendo here in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. 
Now, a few observations here. You can go to the next slide. I told you I got a little chart happy. <laughs> this is Isaiah's view and, and the prophets of old time. This is their view of world history. There's a creation, there's a fall that, that brought this decreation and this old decaying creation. And they're looking forward to the future and they're saying, Israel, one day there's going to become a new creation. God's going to wipe away our tears. He's going to rule on the throne. We're going to be resurrected up. It's going to be great. You are going to be God's new creation one day. But here's the plot twist that they didn't see in, entirely see coming. Because Christ, he is the new creation. And since he is the new creation, anyone who is in Christ, that means anyone who is united to Christ by faith, becomes part of the new creation in the midst of the old one. It's as if God's new creation life is kind of coming down. It's like back, to the, back, from, back from the future. It's coming down in the midst of the old creation. And then anyone who latches themselves onto Jesus becomes part of this new creation in the midst of the old one. You, if you are a Christian, are God's recreation in the midst of his decreation. And what that means for you, Christian, what it means for you to be a new creation is that God has given you a new birth. You're now born of God and not of Satan. You have a new heart. You now love Jesus and not, you love Jesus Christ more than your sin. You have a new identity in Christ and not of the world. You have a new family, the church. You have a new covenant. You have a new destination, the new heavens and new earth. You have a new citizenship in heaven. This world's not your home anymore. You're part of a new world order where truth and grace and holiness and justice and mercy reign. He's, he's not in there yet, whoever that is. That's probably my kid. That's what it means to be God's new creation. Okay, I have three questions about this new creation. Three questions about this new creation, and they come from verses 18 through 20. Who, how, and why? Who, 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 is this who, who makes this new creation happen? Where does it come from? How, do the, how does this new creation come about? And why has God brought about this new creation in us? Okay? So first who, and, and these are unpacked in verses 18 through 20. Who's the, new, who's the source of your new creation life? Can you make yourself into a new creation? The world would say you probably can. It's up to you. But no, it isn't. Verse 18, this is all from God. Scripture is clear from start to finish. If you and I were left to ourselves, we would never choose life. We would never choose Jesus over our sin. Okay, that, that's what the scriptures make clear. But God can do what you and I can't do. God can change not, change not just your behavior, but your desires. If you, if you today are here and you find your, that, you, that you love God and that your, your desires are for good things, I can, be, I can promise you those desires didn't come from you, but they came from God. And I can promise you that those desires come from God working in your heart. Second, how? How do we become a new creation? Verse 18. God reconciled us to himself through Christ. 
That means the major obstacle between you getting in, you becoming part of this new creation is that your relationship with God, reconciliation is a relational term, your, your relationship with God is broken because of sin. God hates, if you want to know who God is, it's hard to know, you can't see God, we learn about him through the scriptures, but here's, here's a few things to latch on to. We know that God hates sin and evil. And we love sin and evil. And God's anger will expunge, will, will annihilate all sin and evil. When what that means is that puts us at the crosshairs of God's anger, doesn't it? Because we have sin and evil in us. And it's good that God wants to annihilate sin because the only chance we ever have of seeing a new creation where there's not a trace of evil or corruption or sin is if God entirely annihilates us. But that means that we're annihilated too. The only way we can have this tearless, painless, free from corruption kind of world is if God takes sin so seriously that he's willing to destroy people who have sin and evil. And that means we'll be wiped out. So how does God reconcile us to himself? Verse 19. By not counting people's sins against them. But how does he not count your sin against you? Does he do it by ignoring your sin? No, of course not. He doesn't simply brush your sin off. Verse 21 tells us how he doesn't count our sins against us. It's perhaps the clearest explanation of what we call the gospel in the whole Bible. It's the explanation of how God doesn't count your sins against you. I'll read it here. God, which is the Father, made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Most of you probably have a, a debit card and a credit card, or at least you're familiar with the idea, a debit, of course, is a, is a sum that is, is, that's owed. Okay, that's what a debit is. The first half of this verse explains that Christ took on our debt. He took on our debit. He paid our debit. He, he took God's anger against sin for us. He paid our debt. But our, our, our reconciliation with God the Father wasn't secured yet. A credit card essentially, right, a credit card essentially puts money into your bank account, I guess you could say, puts money into your account that you actually didn't earn. That's actually not from you. It's, a, it's the bank's money, but you get to use it. It shows up in your account. And that's what Christ did for us. He credited to us his righteousness, to our account, so that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness and the beauty and the holiness and the perfect obedience of his son instead of seeing all the debt that I've really accrued myself. So not only does Jesus pay our debt, but he also credits our bank before God with righteousness. And that's how God reconciles us to himself and brings us into this new creation. Question number three, why? What purpose do we have in this new creation? We are reconciled to God and we are brought into this new creation with a purpose, with a mission. Read verse 18 with me. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Look down to verse 20. We, as new creations, of course, are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So, so life in the new creation is not about sitting back and lounging, lounging back in the beach chair and drinking your margarita. Life in the new creation is life on mission. We have a new job description. We are ambassadors, right, for Christ. And what does an ambassador do? An ambassador represents a foreign nation, a foreign government, in, a, in, a, in another nation, right? Paul's saying you are now official representatives of this new creation kingdom in the midst of the old one. If you're a Christian here today, your first job description as a human and as a Christian, before, your, your first job description is to represent Jesus. And, and, and declare his reconciliation to the world. Before you're an accountant, or a teacher, or an engineer, or a mom, or all these other things that are great things, you represent that new creation. God is making his appeal through you. So REC, God invites us. He's chosen to use these flawed, not-so-winsome people to be his megaphone, to join the new creation. Can we really say we're being obedient to Christ if we never implore our friends and our neighbors to be reconciled to God? Think about this with me. What, what would happen if we began to prioritize this mission, this fundamental mission that God had given us? What if we began to strategically invite our friends and neighbors over our houses. Don't, don't, throw their, don't throw your stuff in their skip, though. <laughs> what if we began to strategically, or, or what if we took our lunch break at work in order to develop a relationship with our coworker so that we could share Jesus with them? What if we joined sports teams and sports leagues and extracurricular activities so that we could be on mission for Jesus? What if we volunteered to help watch our neighbor's children, bring them meals, take them on errands if they don't have a car, so that we could share Jesus with them? What if we took five minutes each evening to pray about ways that we could strategically be ambassadors for Christ? What if we took just 10 minutes a week to strategize how, or to, to pray for our neighbors and pray for people who are, aren't Christians around us? God has brought you into this new creation with a mission. Okay, so at the beginning I asked this question, can we start over? And, and the answer is definitive from 2 Corinthians 5.17, you can start over. You can have a new start. And there's three reasons why that correlate to the, the last three things I said. You can have a new start. You can start over because ultimately it's not up to you. Here's the reality. None of us have a delete key in our life, right? I wish I could have deleted that, in, that incident with my neighbor. I, was, I had great plans for how our relationship was going to get off to a start. I wish I had a delete key, but I don't. You don't have the resources in yourself, in yourself to transform your life and transform your heart. But God is so powerful that when you trust him, 
He can do things in your heart and, at your, and with your desires that you could never do on your own, okay? He can change desires that you can't change. So he can do it. It's not up to you. Secondly, you can start over because Christ did everything you need already. If you're going to start over, you're going to need someone to deal with your past, and you're going to need someone to transform your heart for the future, right? right? And Christ has taken care of your past on the cross, and he's given you his righteousness for the future, and then he's given you the spirit to transform your heart so that when you show up to the new creation, guess what? You are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So Christ did everything you need. And lastly, you can start over because you have a new purpose for life. In the, best, in the past decade, much of the uh, psychology and sociology research has, has demonstrated a strong link, sadly, between suicide and, and people who have lost all purpose in life. And I guess that doesn't sound incredibly groundbreaking uh, because, I mean, if you've lost purpose for living, it's not a large step to, why should I keep on living? Now, there are many purposes for life. And, yeah, we pray that no one ever takes their life. But you see, as a new creation, your fundamental purpose for living can't ever be taken away from you. If my purpose in life is to be a professional athlete, well, one injury can destroy my purpose in life. If my purpose in life is to be rich, well, a job loss can destroy my purpose, can't it? Or think about those, man, think about those in prison. Someone with a lifetime sentence. What does he or she have to live for? If you're a new creation you can live your mission and ultimate purpose out anywhere in the world that there are people. It's a purpose and a mission that no one can ever take away from you, no matter how low the low gets or how high the high gets. So Jesus invites us into this new creation. God does it all. Jesus accomplishes it all. And we have a purpose and a mission that can drive us forward in inviting other people into this new creation.